Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Welcome, welcome. Here we are, everybody. I am George Armistead, and I am here with Alvaro Jaramillo. This is the latest episode of Life List, a birding podcast. Alvaro, what is happening, man? Hi, how you doing, George? You know, um, actually enjoying beautiful kind of sunny weather, you know, here on the coast, which does happen at at this time of year. This is when we get the start of the sun. The end of summer is cold <laughs> and foggy. Now it's like yeah. fall and it's sunny and warm. We have all the seasons turned around here on the coast. And, <laughs> yeah. But so so it's nice. Although I think the rest of the state's having a big heat heat wave that's unbearable. But uh here at least it's bearable. Nice. Well, that is good. Yeah, you you do live in a little you guys are in a weird little microclimate situation there uh around the bay area. Um yeah, it is um it's warm here. It's uh it's in the low mid 90s. In fact, there are several schools that are closing early today due to heat. Mm. Um which is not something that ever happened when I was a kid. It's like, man, you know, we had, we had snow days here and there, but heat days, just that wasn't a thing back, you know, when I was in school. Well, the kids are weak now, not like the (laughs) fortitude of the older generations. Uh, Obviously we're weaker than the generation previous to us. And it's, it's just the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's just the way it works. They melt. Yeah. I mean, back that we walked up, you know, walked uphill to school both ways, you know, back right, when we right. were. Yeah, that's the way it worked. The bones were stronger back in the old days and uh, tougher. And we were tougher. Tougher. Yeah. A little yeah. shorter, stockier people who could handle mm-hmm. more things. Yeah. Now, a little squatter. Yeah. More rotund. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just these, you know, yeah. Tiny people. No, I'm just joking. More, more feeble with every generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. That's, you know, America. Making America feeble again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's funny though, that whole thing, you know, it's every generation's exactly the same, you know, like they always complain about the younger generation being whatever, just not up to par. I mean, it is a constant. You know, it was like, yeah, this, these kids today, this generation. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I know. And they're always like, you know, it's just time is what changes, you know, it's not, not people don't really change that much, but no, no, they actually, you know, they actually got, I've gotten taller and healthier over yeah. the years, but you know, there you go. Um, yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's crazy though. I mean, you've got these, um, so that my, my weather, you know, guru, uh, the guy I follow Daniel Swain. He yeah. Helped, yeah. He published, uh, along with other collaborators in this sort of multifaceted thing, uh, some news that sort of went worldwide, which was that uh, California should be prepared for a mega flood. Uh, I don't know if you saw that in the last couple of weeks. I did see that, yes. And it seems crazy. And they even talk about how crazy it is to to be talking about a mega flood during a multi-year drought. But he was sort of saying, this this is what's happening. It's that we we're going from situations where storms will become more powerful and droughts will become more unbearable and heat will become 
you know, greater, and we're going to have cold areas and cold snaps that will will be record breaking. So it's sort of everything is not only the mean is moving, but that divergence from the mean. The and, extremes uh, are getting more extreme. Yeah. yeah, and and you read the stuff that he puts out, and the fact that some of these mega floods have happened in the past, and you're like, oh my god, you know, all you need is uh, essentially just you know a a full. January, let's say, of of the high elevated kind of stream of rainfall that we get from from you know off and on. If it all happens in one one situation, one year, and it's supposed to be usually this will likely be in an El Nino year, then you could get all of Sacramento underwater, like much of the Central Valley turning into an inland lake, a sea. And, and you're thinking this is insane, but you read it and you're like, actually, this has happened in the past. It's not that insane. So to have somebody warn us to do something about it or in terms of like prepare, you know, uh, like buy a boat, inflatable dinghy or something. I don't know how you prepare, but yeah. it's definitely better to have it as a, a potential, you know, in the next 30, 40 years rather than just not have it be there at all. Um, kind of like yeah. we we're preparing for earthquakes all the time. Right. You know, it's sort of, but, uh, uh, it, I thought it was interesting, you know, weather, climate, yeah. murders like weather and climate. Sometimes uh, now it's getting so crazy, you know. How, how his forecast of this mega flood? I didn't. I, I saw sort of the headlines in the in the notes. I um, didn't didn't get a chance to read the whole um, um, treatise that he 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 made on this, but. Did he give any kind of timeline? Are we talking like sometime in the next couple of decades or are we talking like sooner than that? Or, you know, yeah, I think, I think they're talking about, you know, the probability of, hap- of it happening in the next 20 years or something is mm-hmm. moderately reasonable enough to be thinking about it or something like that. You know, it's, yeah. So it was, um, but, but they, they modeled um, using current weather, Info and they actually modeled their predictions using sort of a s- scenario, a modeled scenario of the world in a different context. You know, in the future, they did a whole bunch of different kind of um, predictions, and and it all comes out like it's actually a viable possibility. Not and wow, the f- man, the fact that in the 1800s it actually did happen. So, so it's like okay, I would alter everything out there. I would change everything. Yeah, it would. It would. You know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we're right now worried about the Salton Sea going dry and the Great Salt Lake and all these situations. But, you know, what if we had one year, one or two years when it just totally reverses to way too much water? Like what's happening now, like with the Mississippi, as the Mississippi is like flowing heavy right now, right? You know, it's it's crazy, you know, and some of these uh, floods in, in um, you know, out in... Um, uh, Pakistan, I guess. I was going to say right. Pakistan right now is yeah. crazy. Like 33 million people displaced or something. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's unthinkable. Yeah. And, um, you know, from a birder perspective, you do wonder, like, obviously we're worried about the people right now, but all that water does something, right? Like, I mean, some of yeah. these water bodies are going to be full for years or, or areas are going to be moister than they have been for years. You, it must actually create an entirely shift in certain birds' populations and distribution. I wonder if, yeah, 
eBird will be able to spot that or find it, you know, if there's enough. Yeah. Bird or I mean, I feel like every, every day in social media, you're seeing, you know, imagery of lakes in the Southwest or U S that are, you know, they're like, this is what they looked like uh, in 1975. And this is what they looked like in 2005. And, you know, it's pretty dramatic how, how much water has been lost. As you say, a couple, couple big floods could change that pretty dramatically. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah. So what have you been up to? What have you been seeing? Yeah, I actually have not been birding that much lately, but I did manage to get out this morning and do a nice little traipse around one of my patches near the house here. And yeah, you know, it's, it's almost September here and birds, they are moving. And uh, yeah, you know, smattering of warblers, chestnut-sided warblers and, and magnolias and, and red-eyed vireos are really starting to build up in numbers. And, uh, you know, I'm always like looking at them, hoping for a black whiskered or yellow green or something. That would be like, you know, epic, epic bird of all time to find around here. Um, yeah. So I have that in mind. Um, yeah. But yeah, one of the nice birds. Vireo. I get them in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> You've had them in the yard? Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah, that's right. I remember that now. Yeah, actually, I think I need it for as an ABA bird. I've seen plenty of them in, you know, Central America, but, um, I've, I've only seen yellow green Vero in my yard in the ABA. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to do it Al. If you can manage it. <laughs> it's a weird, wow. weird situation. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, it's one of those things that was again, kind of unthinkable in the mid Atlantic up until the last few years. And, and now Cape May, they've had a couple and, They've had at least one on the Outer Banks, North Carolina, and, and I think Massachusetts might have a couple. So yeah. they're it's one of these things that they're just slipping through the cracks, and there's so many red-eyed vireos, and it'd be real easy to just not see a red-eyed vireo real well. You know, just yeah. trying, trying to pick one of those out would take, you know, not only some work, but an incredible amount of luck. Uh, yeah. But of course, as we've discussed before, if you're not in the game and looking, then you can't win the game. So yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to win the game. But, you know, uh, you know, one game one could win eventually is the Marsh Harrier game because you know there was a Western Marsh yes. Harrier uh, scene in Maine, and yeah, obviously great excitement and the whole thing, big rarity, uh, sort of first confirmed one in the U.S. But there's been something like five or six records in the Caribbean. So oh yeah, it, ma- yeah. it makes you think. Oh, so those probably also went through the U.S. and nobody saw them. Yeah, you know? well, and there's even been reports uh, in the U.S. There was there was one in Virginia at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, I want to say it was I don't remember it was late '80s or early '90s, but it was it was seen by I think over two days maybe by mm-hmm. a number of people that were pretty good birders, you know, that like knew what they were looking at. Um, and everybody said it was a Western Marsh Harrier at the time. And so, you know, this thing's, I don't know when the last time it's been seen up there in Maine. Um, but I was i was thinking like, it'd be so awesome if this bird didn't really hang around one spot, but just sort of like, you know, popped up at different places, you know, as it gets colder here, maybe he'll head south and maybe he'll yeah, turn up I mean, at Chincoteague. And how, how yeah. cool would that be? You know? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly what I think is going to happen. That bird's migra- migrating right now, and it's, you know, it could even show up like at, at Cape May and the hawk watch, yep. you know. It's like, that that's ex- like oh, my God, yep. you know. I was yeah. talking about that very thing with Tom and Doug the other day, and I'll, I'll be down there both in September and October. So, you know, that'd be a, a fun thing to dream about is having yeah. that thing that cruise by. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Another nice bird I had today was the olive-sided flycatcher, um, which is a scarce migrant around here. Looking at them, they kind of hug, you know, the fall line, um, uh, the ge- geological fall line here. There's a number of things that don't, you know, they they kind of stick to the edge of uh, the Appalachian foothills and don't get down as much along the coastal plain. So someplace like Cape May, you know, they'll where they get a lot of migrants funnel in, they'll get a good number there. But right here, we're right on the edge of the fall line, and it's a pretty decent place to find these olive sideds. And uh, but still, always a treat to see them. It's really kind of a scarce, rare migrant around here. It's a bird we always get excited about. And this thing was going after an eastern wood peewee. And like I heard, I heard an audible smack. As it like went after this eastern wood peewee, they were hunting out of the same big tall oak. Had a big, you know, all sided flycatchers love snags, right? They love to perch yeah. on exposed snags, even more so than peewees do. Was it a and, Will Smith uh, size smack that you heard? It, it you know, it was it was <laughs> even Rock. more audible than that. Even more audible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. It was like I was like, man, that sounded like it hurt, you know. And yeah. uh, and then there was a robin that took took uh, the bold step of perching in one of those snags near this olive sided, and eventually he didn't really mess with it. The olive side didn't really mess with it until it took off and started flying away. And then it just like an eastern kingbird, it went after it, you know, just like right on its huh. back, you know. So that was really nice to see. That's always a treat to see olive sided flycatcher. Nice, nice bird today. Yeah, they you know they breed here, but. We don't, I hardly ever see them as migrants. Like they just sort of appear and then they disappear. But the other day I was walking the dog and an olive sided flycatcher in the middle of the day just flew over, you know, heading into grassland, over grassland. And I was like, I've never actually seen that around here. Just wow. Olive sided flycatcher flying, you know, and it, they, their shape looks more like a wax wing, you know, like they're so yes. weirdly proportioned. They don't look like a flycatcher almost when they're flying. That's through. that's the big danger around here is juvenile wax wings will perch up on little snags in the distance and people will think they have an olive sided and and yeah. you know sometimes they end up being these juvie wax wings. Yeah they're they're a neat bird. You've probably seen them in the wintering areas where they do exactly the same behaviors yes. in the summering areas. They're right on a snag tippy top but yet they're above the canopy of a tropical lowland forests instead of like yeah you know <laughs> the woods near you know canadian woods or something yeah if you're used to looking for them like you know in the you know spruce forests of you know the north and all of a sudden you see them down there it's like wow they're doing the same thing but just completely different you know habitat but that is that's one of my favorite games on alaska tours is to spot the olive-sided flycatcher you know you can of- often hear them giving that quick three beers song and um and then you know trying to spot them because you can hear them from a long way off you know that song really carries especially in that landscape and uh 
you know, spotting it atop the spruce is always a fun game, especially if you uh, succeed in in spotting them. Yeah, feels. Yeah. Um, what other? Uh, let's see. Rarities. There's been some pelagic rarities out your way too, right? Like a lot yes. of pelagic goings on. Yeah, I am really excited. We've got a Hillstar Nature pelagic coming up on the 10th of September. There's just a couple spots left. Um, I think it'll it'll probably sell out in the next day or two if it if it hasn't actually already today. We'll see. And yeah, this is good news because. Man, there have been some epic pelagics the last few days. Um, pelagic out of Cape May, New Jersey, this past weekend, had two white-faced storm petrels, which is kind of the big bird everyone's going for around here this this time of year. And, you know, I, I have people contacting me sometimes say, hey, you know, I'd really love to um, go on a pelagic, but I don't want to go, you know, on like a full day. Could we do like a five-hour, you know, trip? And I want to be like, yeah, we could, but our chances of finding anything of note are really slim. Usually you got to get out in the deep. Now, white-faced storm petrel is one. Occasionally you can get super, super lucky like they just did off uh, Rhode Island, I think it was. They had one, you know, not far from shore. Every now and then they're just a couple miles offshore. So that can happen. But man, it's not something you can count on. But they had two on this Jersey trip. Plus they had New Jersey's first Bermuda petrel, the Cahow. Right, one of the rarest cow. seabirds in the in the world. Yeah, the cow. <laughs> such a great name, you know. I think they should change the name from Bermuda petrel just to cow. I think that's such a, a cooler name, and it's a great story as well. The comeback of the cow, you know, is down to just a couple dozen birds at one point, and their numbers have climbed and climbed due to the conservation efforts in Bermuda where they nest and. Uh, and it's sort of like a black cat petrel, but smaller and more compact and tar- darker overall. And so that was pretty epic. And then this weekend, Brookline Bird Club trip out of Massachusetts went out and they got to where they needed to, to find the white-faced storm petrels. And that's the best area really in North America with that people go to with any regularity for white-faced storm petrel. And they had 589, which I, th- I think like the previous record you know, on any North American trip is maybe in the twenties or thirties or something. There might be some fishing boat that had 40 or 50 and it's a matter of getting out to where they are, uh, to really rack up the numbers. And man, I think th- these guys, they, you know, the Brookline bird club trip, I think they, they not only got out to where they are, um, it happened to be a very good year as well. And, uh, maybe these things are a little, Brian Patterson was saying he thinks, you you know, you get out there far enough, they're out there and often even a little further north, but maybe they're a little bit further south this year. And that's part of what's going on. But, you know, what a charismatic little seabird, white-faced storm petrel. People don't know it. I mean, it's a, it's a dapper little seabird, little storm petrel. They say it's like a little kangaroo, you know, working along the surface of the water. They can't go very fast, but, man, they can go a long way with that little kangaroo flight of theirs. Yeah, they they hop. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of these long, the the Southern storm petrels have these funny, um, hopping or odd skipping oddball things like, um, the black bellied, I don't know if you've ever seen them in the South when the big wave comes through, they will, they will go along that wave and not trail the leg into the wave. Yeah. They kind of skip along it. Yeah. Almost like they're, they're using the wave to push them off, you know? Yeah. 
just um, to just find the lift. Yeah, you see yeah. them kind of skitter along. They do that skittering. And Wilson's, you know, the Wilson's group does this kind of thing too. They they will like, you know, just hold their wings open and then paddle. But also sometimes they do it with closed wings and they're just walking on the water. If it like using the surface tension. Yeah. 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 And uh, exactly what they're doing, I'm not sure um, if if they're moving the you know they're just using that to to keep their body steady so they can see and feed right like so they're not moving too quickly um or or if they're actually doing something with the feet to 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 create food disturb food or something my guess is that they're trying to stay sort of steady and in in position to eat is what they might be doing but it's only the yeah. southern that southern group the northern storm petrels don't do anything quite like that you know the you know the hydrobatties now, hydrobatidae. But yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. We yeah. had um we had a pelagic, well, a couple of pelagics over the last few week and a half or so. And uh we uh, saw three Lazan albatrosses on this Sunday off of Half Moon Bay, which was cool. Oh um, man. Three multiple species of storm petrels, ashy black, um, Wilson's Lots of buller shear waters this year. About a week and a half ago, is it now? Yeah, week maybe. Yeah, week week and a half ago now. Um, out of Monterey, we found a Hawaiian petrel, which was a, a man one. And, yeah, I need um, that bird. Need that yeah. bird. Yeah, and that was and a Nazca booby, which is becoming a regular in California, but not so much this far north. So for us, it's still a, a major, major one. And you know. Um, the beaked whales, Baird's beaked whales. I don't know if. I, How know. often do you see those? I saw that you had those, and I was like, "Man, that's an animal I'd really love to see." The Berardius, I think it's, yeah? yeah, I think it's the third time we've ever seen them, and always wow. it's been Monterey. We actually have never seen them off of Half Moon Bay, which may just be the situation. I don't know. It may be that there's more of them down there um, if they're around, but it's just kind of an exciting time to do pelagics, and we we've gotten this. Um, we all of our pelagics and are in uh, marine sanctuaries, and it means that we cannot do certain things that you can openly do elsewhere, like chum. But we've just been granted a research um, permit that allows us, in the course of research on storm petrels locally, for us to do some limited amount of chumming. So that's been happening in the last couple of weeks, and you know, and I'm really thankful to the marine sanctuaries that they want to get this data. And also, you know, they know that there's a benefit to the birders that, you know, they can see albatrosses up close and so forth. And, and that that connection to the birds is something that helps the sanctuary. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're, yeah, we've started. So, you know, that, that meant that we've been seeing some things a little closer and better than we have the last few years. So that's been cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Hawaiian petrel, Laysan albatross, I remember, was my 500th bird for North America, for ABA area. Wow. Um, on, a, uh, on a Washington state pelagic out of Westport. Notoriously uh, blustery inlet, Westport. Yeah. But man, see some good stuff up there. Yeah. Yeah, Westport. I, I didn't ever do a Westport pelagic, but I did... The Oregon Plagics, you know, we did a, a few of those, yeah. me and you, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Tours. And I think that was always considered a little calmer. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it could only be. It's like Westport and like Cape Town. Those are like the ports I think of where you're going to get, you know, the inlet, especially at Westport. Now, once you get up further, I don't remember it being quite so bad, but yeah, those yeah. are, you can get tossed around a little bit out there. Yeah. So, George, and yes, sir. Recently, recently, the AOS, the former AOU, um, published their supplement to the checklist of North American birds, which, yes, as you know, people wait for this with baby. Yeah, it's a big deal, man. It's a big deal. (laughs) Big deal. Yeah. (laughs) And the reason it's a big deal, right? It's because people, want to see if anything was split right they want the right armchair ticks you know and they don't want to uh, lose anything right so lumps yeah. are usually not uh as uh as popular splits yeah usually people pretty happy about that people usually yeah they don't argue over the splits i actually had a friend in, in argentina just talk about in spanish he called it lifer de escritorio which means like, you know, lifer while I'm at my desk. So that's, there's mm-hmm. like even like, it's translated out to multiple language, the armchair tick. Like you're yeah. just sitting around yeah. in your escrow, armchair. Escrow ticks. Escrow yeah. ticks. Yeah. And then you can get a new one because you've seen the two elements of the split, you know, such as happened this this year with the Meadowlark, right? Which Yes, that was the big kind of the headliner. Yeah. The headliner. Yeah. Um and uh, yeah, like I, I like I, I like to say they instead of Lil, Lillian's metal arc, they called it the Chihuahuan metal arc. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> wow, you uh, Chihuahuan. Okay, yeah, uh, there we go. That's yeah. I'm just I'm just so you have to, to work on your Spanish there, Alvaro. Work on your <laughs> Espanol. Espanol. I'm just trying to make fun of the fact that I'm sure that you know, even though this process of getting this English name that wasn't named for a person and there was public input and so forth. I'm sure that there's still going to be all sorts of complaints about the name. And no, I'm sure. Even yeah. though I, you know, I, um, one of the concepts that's difficult in this one is that we know sort of the, sort of the Lillian's Chihuahuan thing in the U S from watching them. Most people see them in Arizona. Maybe some people see them in West Texas, New Mexico, but they're a desert bird, right? So, you know, the desert grassland. So there were these ideas of the desert grassland metal arc, the um, desert metal arc. Yet there's an entirely different population of Chihuahuan metal arc further south in Mexico in the mountains that's in moist areas. But it's a mountain, kind of, it's almost like the mountain plateau um, metal arc. And it is, it is darker in plumage. It's, you know, it's, uh, I think it's Ariel pectoralis. And right. it looks nothing like Liliane, the actual true sort of Lillian's portion of this metal arc. So I wonder if in the end we're going to look at this name and think oh, maybe maybe we could have named it something more, you know, Mexican metal or Mexican or plateau metal arc or some, I don't know. Um, I stand by high desert metal arc. High desert. Still st- yeah, I still think yeah, that but- that was colorful name but again if you go further south it's not a desert metal arc but i guess if they split that one out if they split that one out then it then the rest of it would be right but they wouldn't split it out because it's in the same oh they're not going to i thought that's where you're getting at oh no i'm getting at the fact that 
that it is one thing, and it's actually clearly one thing, yet the northern element is Lillian's, which is this deserty, gotcha. pale thing. The southern part of the species of Chihuahua, it's actually darker, more, you know, brighter colored, and not in true desert grasslands. Right. So, you know, we've once again ignored this whole situation going on in, in south of the border. <laughs> yeah. I generally don't, I didn't favor the names for coloration but pallid right. metal arc uh was one that you know was floated but then that one wouldn't work for for the uh aura pectoralis yeah um, how about just new metal arc <laughs> <laughs> novel metal arc yeah. yeah and we are so centered on you know the here the u.s canada aba that you know i saw somebody saying now we have three metal arcs and three metal arcs how about long-tailed metal arc and, you know, all these South American metal arcs? There's more than three metal arcs. We have oh, three yeah. yellow ones, but <laughs> the yeah, ones the all the, the loikas and red-breasted blackbird. What used to be red-breasted yeah. blackbird, right, is now that's yeah. metal arc too. Yeah. yeah. I think if if a new split happens with the yellow-breasted metal arcs, it'll be Cuban metal arc. That's my prediction. And mm-hmm. um, I have a certain amount of Crepitans invested crepit- time into that one, so... So let me ask you, Al, of of the the updates you saw here to the to the checklist, um, and and you can feel free to tell me if you hate this question, but do you have one you really like that you know aside from the metal art? Let's you know turn the page on the metal art, um, and do you have a decision here that really? Gets your goat, as they say. Oh boy! Uh, so, I gotta, I gotta tell you that I am personally invested in some of these, this, these things because I had something to do with them. Like I actually wrote or was partaking in a proposal, or or that kind of thing. You know. Um, so, uh, it's not an objective viewpoint I have. Very <laughs> All right. Give us, give us your Somewhat full. Angry. Sub, yeah. That's what we, that's what we want. We want angry <laughs> Al. We want your fully subjective take here. Okay. So let me start with a positive, right? Um, okay. I was, the, there are some. Go high before you go low. I like yeah, it. Yeah. 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 There, there's some yeah. birds that are just added in because the, eventually the ABA, the ID people, there's, all the publications happen and and we go, aha, these things have actually occurred in 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 the AO, AOU area. So we accept them as sort of vagrants. And I was super happy to see sort of the small build Elenia get yes. you know added on now with multiple records. But the original one, you remember that, right? I remember it well. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh you know with with Greg out there putting it all in that, you know, he had that uh, Illinois um, forum, Illinois birders network. Yeah. It, Illinois yeah, birding Illinois, forum. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was sort of a kind of cool thing. And yeah. So this bird shows up and, you know, near Chicago and people are going into this forum and giving their ideas of what it is. And, you know, this is years ago. Nobody, you know, it was like, well, that's no, I'm 2000, in the lane 2012. I think it was. Yeah. Could be, yeah, yeah, and and then there were arguments back and forth, and I remember kind of getting into this, into the wing formula and different aspects of what's going on, 
And I thought this makes, at that point, it didn't make sense to me. I thought, but because Chilean white crestalania is much more likely right. in, in, in that mindset that I had, because I thought of it as more migratory. But I, th- I said, I think this is a small Bellalania, you know, and I yep. got pushbacks from some pretty major figures in the flycatcher world. Yes. Others who are more like, okay with it. Others who are, you know, let's see how this plays out. But nothing played out because it kind of was a standstill. We didn't know uh, what was going on. Then new records happened more recently, the last few years. And then we could, fig- you know, better photographs exist, little analysis of this and that. And, uh, and boom, you know, we figure out there's been now more small Bellanias and they're taking over as almost the more likely Elania to show up yeah. here as opposed to the Chilean. So that whole process that I was kind of little part of in the past, you know, and, and, you know, I did a little ID, how to ID them in just recently, like a little video. Yeah. That was a great, great video you did. Yeah. So cool. Thanks. You know, it, it, it felt like cool. Like it wasn't all a waste of my time where I could right. have been doing something else more productive. Like it yeah. actually shifted something. And obviously somebody else might've done the same thing in the, and figured out the same thing over time. But there was a yeah. certain joy of seeing small Bildelania, you know, added on that list. Yeah. And you know, right. I still remember that. I, I remember that one. Well, that first one as well. And you and I talked about it. I remember we talked about it with, you know, a bunch of our friends at the time, but I think, I think I, I was in a restaurant with Greg Nice, Nate Swick, uh, and one or two others from the ABA. And I remember now you're just Greg dropping with, now. You're just name <laughs> dropping. Yeah, well, we're all working together. But the you know, and, and he just Greg with no context just showed me the phone. He was like, "What do you think that is?" And I was like, "Well, I was like, well, that's it's an Elanian. and uh, and I was and I was like, "It's you know, it's either a white crested or a." or a uh, small build. And I was like, I had to guess, I guess it's a small build. And I was like, where is that? And he was like, it's in Chicago. And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> and, uh, and I, yeah, I, like I assumed he was, you know, somebody from was down in Buenos Aires or something and yeah. sent him these photos. And then I remember, you know, you, you felt it was small build after like looking at it like critically. Um, and some others did as well, but then like a lot of a lot of folks kind of went white crested, and it and eventually it just wasn't resolved, right? Like people right. just decided exactly. it wasn't resolvable, and I I still think that that was the wrong decision. Um, but yeah, it is. It's nice to see that one on the board finally, and Illinois has gotten another one since then, so that probably helps uh, remove the bad taste from that first one. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah, and um, definitely cool thing and there's been other uh vagrants that were added to the checklist you know i think there's a hooded crane northern giant petrel um blue and white swallow inca turn all cool things um i did though want to say to you that way back in those days we used to talk about writing an article on wrong way vagrants from the austral migratory sphere and it's been many years and we haven't done it. I wonder if we should one day just do a podcast on that and just get yeah. it out there. I like in that. this format, which is easier yeah. than writing things down on paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can say anything here, you know, it's like yeah. writing, you got to be actually be careful, you know? Yeah. You have to like <laughs> cite sources. We don't have to cite anything here. We just 
talk and people think we're telling the truth. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. We should definitely, well, well let's do that. Let's, let's run yeah. with that. That's a point. We'll Austral vagrants. Yeah. yeah. Austral, yeah. Austral vagrants. Um, okay. So the one that, um, there are things that I find moderately annoying, um, uh, the wimbrels weren't separated yeah. into two barn owls weren't separated. Um, right. These, these seem like splits that should happen, right? Yeah. Like the wimbrel yeah. and, the, and the barn owl. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I was involved in a, one of uh, these proposals to separate the Antillian, lesser Antillian house friends into multiple species, you know, along with Brian Sullivan, Van Remsen, other people. And in that case, they did not, accept it but it was not due to the fact that they didn't agree they just sort of thought you've just put together this proposal and maybe you should publish this so it's on paper somewhere and then it can be assessed because they you know the just kind of going back here the aos is really process based and very by the book um type uh you know the the north american committee so they, they want to deal with published information rather than what they would say is just sort of, you know, hearsay. Of course, the world has changed right now. You can look at photo, multiple hundreds of photographs of birds on eBird or listen to things on Xenocanto or eBird and put together something like a proposal that you could convince the average human being that, yes, you're right. These are two species. But to them, there's like, okay, that's great, but publish it. And then we can yeah. look at it, right? Seems so, a little antiquated. I mean, and, and maybe maybe it's a case by case thing. Maybe there's some stuff you really would want to see published someplace, and other things you could just kind of make a judgment call about. No, yeah, and and I think this is an argument that's actually a really valid one as to these committees. And I'm I'm part of the South American version of this committee. The relevance that these committees have and the 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 authority they have is garnered to you now in today's world by the users, right? In the old school ways, it was just because the AOS, the AOU at the time said, well, this is our official committee. And other people would say, well, we're going to listen to the official word. Uh, Whatever the committees do, that's the official word. Today, we have, you know, eBird and sometimes eBird, you know, or, you know, Cornell has not agreed with the uh, AOS committees and sort of done their own thing. And I think it's, it should be a wake up call to the committees to sort of say, huh, okay, do we continue on this very, very like conservative approach to making um, changes that are backed up by 120% evidence? Or do we start moving more quickly and not worry too much about the fact that we might make a wrong call every so often? Because we can always reverse them. Right. Yeah. And even, uh, even with a hundred percent, even with 120% of the evidence, you know, yeah. you can still make a mistake. So, you know, yeah. And I think this gets to the thrust of where birders get upset at the committee at the AOS committees is that they don't seem to move fast enough because they're being so conservative. And in fact, the culture of the committees becomes so seemingly not wanting to make changes um, unless, you know, it's overwhelming that people are, I think there's a lot of people just aren't listening anymore. They're like, right. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to use another checklist from, you know, the IOC or, or, or maybe uh, eBird, you know, I'll, I'll just start 
putting them down as subspecies within my the, my eBird account. Um, you know what I mean? So, yeah. No, I think they and, become less a little less relevant as time goes on. If you know, like anything else, like the, the definition of a fossil, right, is something that stays the same as everything else changes around it. So, like, yeah. <laughs> if you don't, if, you know, like if if you don't evolve to your surroundings, then you definitely risk becoming fossil. And I, I'm not suggesting that that's the case with NAC because there's a lot of thinking. All the people there are thinking people. Yeah, um, really they're, good people on the committees. Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, um, and it and it is a thankless job too. Like I like to point out that, you know, if you know, there's people like us and, and others say they're why well, you know they're not moving fast enough. They should be doing this. They should be doing that. Like like there's an obvious change. Do this. Do that. And then you got other people being like, you know, you know, like split Wimbrel. What are you talking about? I like Wimbrel yeah. just the way it is. You know, yeah. and then they they get yeah. they get mad at like having to to learn new stuff basically. So. You know, no matter yeah. what they do, they're going to face criticism, and, and I'm sure they're they're keenly aware of that. But yeah, it seems like it is an antiquated approach to always require everything be published. That, like you could make faster decisions that are important too and affect conservation, especially these house wrens in the Lesser Antilles. Right? Some of these things you're talking about have really small populations. You know, like yeah. it seems like there's some At decisions least. that could be made regarding their taxonomy that could could have impacts. Um, that are even greater than just listing, you know. I want to say two of them are extinct, actually. Um, Martinique yeah. and Guadeloupe. Um, yeah, they're gone. Um, and and one of them was still there in the eighties. So you know, it's it's yeah. But you know, when you when you think about process and and antiquated, I just I maybe a lot of birders haven't thought about this, but it's the checklist supplement, right? And you're like, okay, checklist supplement, supplement to what? You know, like, what are they supplementing? And it's actually, this one is called the 63rd supplement to the American Ornithological Society's checklist of North American birds. Then you start looking at it and it says, this is actually the 22nd supplement since the publication of the seventh edition of the checklist. So we're talking about, there is actually a book that is the checklist of birds of North America that was published like in the 90s. That was the seventh edition. And each one of these things supplements, it changes stuff in the book. Um, but they haven't published a new book. Um, and to me, it's like, shouldn't this just be kind of this online living document? Rather right, than, at this point, yeah. At this point, you know, like, yeah. it's sort of, it's it's such an old way to do it. And I mean, probably nobody's really thought about it because it's just the way it always has been. Right, um, and it does make for a nice annual supplement to come out, and we can all like you know summer when there's less birds and you're overheating in Philly and disgusted at the fact that you know <laughs> you have to keep your <laughs> you can't go out burning comfortably. You can yeah. at least you know shake your fist at the supplement. But yes, I, yeah, shaking my fist. Here's the one. Here's the one that gets me. Oh wow! So we're we're not even to the the one that really. Oh, yeah, no, I'm just building up my anger. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm scared. I'm like quaking here. So I wrote this this proposal because last year they separated. Well, I thought great, great thing. The mugal into three. Uh, well, into two species. Yes, two species. Oh, I'm with you on this. I am with mugal you. Yes, and common gull, right? And. uh they said, well, we're splitting this thing. It's going to be super confusing if we keep Mugol because we won't know what we were ever talking about. 
when <laughs> if we were talking about the one in North America or the one in Europe, Asia. So we're going to give it a new name, a new name that's in fact a really old name. So in, in fact, they're reverting to a name that, you know, the average person alive had never seen, you know, used in public. <laughs> you know, right. Short build goal. And you can argue, well, they really are short build, but so is Bonaparte's goal, right? Right. It's, it's, a, it's not a great it's, name. It's not a great name. Mugol, with all of its inaccuracies or various things or whatever you might want to go and find, it's just a cool name. And distinctive. And it, distinctive and it implies something cute to me it's like a cute sounding name for a cute looking bird there's mm-hmm. this thing i will i wrote up this proposal saying that in fact if we kept mugal we would minimize confusion yeah because unlike most birds we actually had a english name that we used almost strictly for the north american one mugal the other ones, we call them common goal or Kamchatka goal. We, oh, we were using English names already to, in fact, talk about three species. Okay, we, it only was split into two, but we already had these names. And a couple of years ago, the scoters were split, right? So white-winged scoter. We didn't have to change white-winged scoter. We kept it. And then velvet scoter in Europe and then uh, Steniger scoter in, in Asia. Black scoter stays black scoter. Yeah. Right? Common scoter in in the UK. Those names are always used, and they did. It hasn't caused any confusion. Mugal was exactly the same, yeah. right? So my proposal was like: here's a bunch of reasons why this doesn't make sense. And if you if you look, you know, it, it makes sense to keep Mugal. And it's only been a year since you changed this name, so it's now it's the time to sort of fix it. Apparently, unanimously voted down. Like, it wasn't even like, and so I am angry. Yeah, <laughs> at the fact as well you should be, my friend, yeah. as well you should be. And obviously it's personal because I really like Mugol, the yeah. name. But I think the what really happened, okay, and this is very critical, I think. You're getting into the nitty gritty here. Yeah. yeah, is that they hadn't thought about that when they'd made the original name change. They hadn't so now- thought about it and they hadn't thought about consistency. And then they made a change that seemed logical at the time without anybody sort of raising their hand and saying, hey, why don't we treat it like the Skoda one? And when somebody pointed it out that they essentially maybe not made the right call, there was a, a, you know, a human response, which everybody right. has of like, right. of, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I'm wrong. But I think they did do the wrong thing, obviously, because I wouldn't have written that proposal. So I'm totally not being objective at all here. Well, you are and you you are and you are not right. Like, uh, like put put it this way before you wrote that proposal, I suspect that you are like I am now was when this split was announced, you thought, okay, good that they're finally splitting those two things. And wait, what, what are they naming it? They're naming it short build goal. Like it already has a name. It already has a name that everybody in North America uses. Like they they didn't and they, they didn't take the path of least resistance. They were like, no. well, let's make this more confusing. You know, like th- that's the yeah. part that I can't get past is you had you ha- as you say, it's a rare situation where you're splitting a bird and they already have 
two widely used common names. Like, yeah. they, it was the, the situation. It, it was a problem that you know. It was a solution that didn't need uh, fixing. I guess you know, like yeah. they, they yeah. took a situation where they they were about to make it perfect, and then they, you know, they they made a bit of a mess. In England, they called it common goal. They didn't use the, the word the name Mugal. So th- there was already a separation. Th- there are little bits here and there where there was a little, but you know, confusion. Maybe a book, a new book that used it or some, but minor, minor, right? Like. Uh, this is, I think, for the for the average birder who's not going to get a new field the field, new field guide is not going to come out with these names for years. Probably, they're going to have, okay, what mugul short bill gulls not in the book? Why? What's going on? And um, I mean, I'm yeah, I I just thought like, wow, what's interesting yeah. that yeah, given was- a second chance to sort of fix this, right? Nobody thought it was a good idea. Yeah. And it's like, and we it messed it up the wonder. first time. Let's continue to mess it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Probably yeah, if they ever, if any of them ever hear this, they're not going to change now, but uh, I yeah. know exactly. I, I mean, what we do here is kind of, that's the whole point. We have fun and we, we have opinions, right? Yes. Some of them yeah. are funny and whatever. And some of them are actually uh, funny yet serious. Right. And I, I do think this is, it's a, we are, we are folks who actually really value the work of the committee. Um, yes. And and by caring for the committee and the work that committees like this do, or records committees, or eBird reviewers, all these people that help us kind of have the foundation of our birding kind of culture, um, we also get angry when we feel like the committees are not, you know, or or the work that's being done perhaps isn't matching expectations of what's yeah. out there, right? Yeah, it's like it seems like the the parsimony that's used by the committee is not in line with what the, the you know the parsimonious approach that many birders might use, and you know it really is like scientists don't use the common names really you know for the most part a oh, lot of them right. they they mostly don't so so the common names are for the layperson, in which case it's sort of like you might as well kind of cater to that audience it would seem to me yeah yeah um and you know and, and the reason i think you care about something the, the the old proverb right is that knowledge begins with putting a name to something if you know you and you want these names you get attached to some of them and but what you want is ease of communication um about these things and anything that complicates communication especially if you're steeped in you know the, the subject matter, the way so many of us are with birds is you, you know, that it becomes frustrating. And, uh, so I, I think that's where we are with this one, but sort of to your point, Alvaro, about now, some of these things, if they seem antiquated or poorly done or poorly thought out, people basically just ignore them. I'd be curious. And when it comes to, um, Mugul, short build go, do you find that people in California are have rapidly adopted short build go and are you hearing that term used a lot i just did a tour to alaska this summer and i remember you know three or four days into the trip we're seeing mugles i still call them mugles and everybody else was calling them mugles as well like nobody was calling them short build gulls you know like yeah you know and yeah, maybe I, that's because the change hasn't really taken a hold or maybe because people don't like it i don't know which right i i think i think it's a bit of both um and and i you know i realized that 
you know, let's say we had to, if we had a split of the Wimbrel, you know, um, Wimbrel, one word name, you know, is, is fantastic. I would have loved one of them to just stay Wimbrel, maybe the Eurasian Wimbrel. You just could have been the Wimbrel and we could have changed ours to, you know, something else. Obviously Hudsonian Wimbrels, what pops in, um, because that's, you know, sort of the, the scientific name and one of the English names that's been used for it. But then there's a logic that we instill on English names that comes from the scientific naming of things as if like, okay, so if you have Wimbrel, you you can't just have Wimbrel. You got to have Eurasian Wimbrel versus Hudsonian Wimbrel. Do we? Like, can can we, or create a new, you know, there's, I'm just kind of going through this sort of like mindset of confusion arises. Yes. But do we give up on a really cool name and make it just one level more efficient? Right. Hmm. I'm not sure I understand. Are you saying that like we, there should be Wimbrel and then there should be Hudsonian Wimbrel? Cause to me, that would be confusing. I would not favor that personally. Yeah. Or, you could be Wimbrel and something else. Um, right. You know, like American another one word name that maybe is, or, uh, right. Yeah. Some other has some right. history. Yeah. We, absolutely. Yeah. We could find out what, you know, um, people from certain part of, you know, yeah. yeah. Ebert could take a poll like they did with this metal right. and come up with a bunch of cool suggestions. That'd be, that, that, that could be fun. You know, and, uh, and I was, we've been thinking about names for you know various aspects and i realize in 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 spanish at least not spanish spain spanish but latin american spanish a lot of the old names for common things like in argentina chile uruguay are one word names so they don't have they don't say something metal arc and something they don't have a first and last name like our english names do it's just a name kind of like cow you know we don't say cow bovine or something, you know, or, you know, we have a sheep caprid and we have a goat caprid, you know, we, we just say sheep and goat because they're really common things that, that people use all the time and, or names that people use all the time. And I thought, where, where in our history did we move? I bet we all call these things. I mean, from the old English names, right? It was like the wren, swallow, wimbrel. And we started moving into this more complicated naming system. And then you think, well, maybe, maybe we should move back to this simple, more simple one word names for certain birds that don't tell you what they're related to. They just tell yeah. you what it is. And you can yeah. use a scientific name. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm getting at. It's like, let's yeah. make our well, names I would groovy love, again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's make, let's make birding groovy again. Yeah. I think, yeah. uh, I, I like I'd love to see Olive Warbler change to Akatero. Um uh did I get that name right? Did I say that right? Yeah. Akatero. I think so. Um and um or like Red Star changed to the Spanish name Condolita, American Red Star. Um you know, like to me that would be that'd be a really I just think it's a fun name. Now, you know, I I'm not gonna sit here and advocate. I don't I don't have a big stake in this. But I just think Condolita, I love the one word names as you're suggesting too. I think those are fun. There's not that many of them and they're cool, you know, and, and a lot of them tend to be kind of distinct. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, oven bird, you know, is, is a great, you know, there's, yeah. uh, you know, I, 
yeah, uh, I don't know. I think that I do. I do like that concept. Um, like Audubon's Myrtle Warbler, right? This isn't one word name, but we could call it Audubon. Well, obviously, you know, now with the with the names for a person thing, you know, okay, but let's just have those names like as an example, Audubon's yellow rump and Myrtle yellow rump. Don't use warbler at all. And, and you're like, oh, that's crazy. Cause they are warblers. In fact, they're not warblers at all. Like real warblers are elsewhere. We just use this name to sort of group these things. And then somebody's going to say, well, hold on a second, but all warblers, we have the name warblers to know what they are. Well, no, we don't water thrush. We have oven bird. But know. we have, we have, I mean, the aforementioned Red olive starts. warbler. Uh, yeah, yeah, the aforementioned olive warbler is one of my favorites, of course, because it is neither olive nor a warbler, as, as many people right. like to say. Um, right. Yeah. So. And it's not even, it's not a warbler twice removed, right? Because it's, it's not a new world warbler. It's just not an old world warbler. It's like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different critter. It's like, so. I wonder if we should um, expand our box of uh, how we think about names. Um, and just getting back to this Mugle, I think it was un- unnecessary and it was a cool name. Um, right. Now we have and a lamer name. We've laid yes. down a name. Short I agree. Goal. That's the way I felt about Thick-Billed Longspur as well, for the record. I thought that that was, you know, didn't like that choice either. I thought it was a, you know. Yeah. It's like sure yeah. it has a it has a slightly thick bill, but it doesn't look like a thick billed lark, you know. Like it's not yeah. uh, it's not that dramatic. Um, I'd much rather have a distinctive name like short grass long spur, or even use the genus name, you know, just the genus name, you know, one word, right? Uh, Rinkafanis, right? You know, it's the only one, right? Um, yeah, or, much yeah, more fun, of- much more colorful, much more distinctive, and it also helps people get how distinct yeah. these things are. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm with you on that one. Um, and and people, you know, especially committee members will say, well, one thing we always get pushed back on is English names and nobody's ever happy with any choice that's made. And I, I agree with that. Nobody's, but, um, but I think part of it has been that the, the choice for these names has been so regimented and structured almost in this real logical framework rather than more of like okay let's loose here let's go a little crazy with it and yeah. see if we can come up with a truly memorable fun name distinctive um, name yeah like memorable name. fun distinctive name yeah um i agree the uh so there's a there's a bunch of other stuff here alan we're actually we're oh, coming yeah, up yeah. on the hour here one thing um, i wanted to get your take on was the split of the Cuban kite from Cuban kite from hookbuilt kite, which I got to be honest, this is one I didn't actually realize it wasn't split. <laughs> I thought it had been split. Yeah, I know. Um, like I'm years ago, saying. I was like, oh, like right. I've been thinking of it as Cuban kite. I don't know how long as as long as I yeah. can remember. Um, Decades old, right? Yeah, yeah. But now uh, this is one that a lot of people say. Uh, yeah, what did you think? The, I, I assume you you are on board with the split, and it's one a lot of people say is, you know, may no longer be around. Right. Yeah, I've I, I I've seen specimens of the Cuban kite, and it you know it's most closely related to hookbill kite, which does have a population actually in the Caribbean, but way way south, like um, 
talking Grenada, there's like a little population of actual hook-bill kites, but they're like proper hook-bill kites. Then there's nothing till you get to this Cuban population. So they're really isolated. You know, they're actually much closer to the population in Mexico, if you think about it distance-wise. But they eat these arboreal snails in Cuba, which has a real diversity of arboreal snails. And they're, some of them are really big. So this thing has a huge bill. That's one of the things. It's different in plumage and huge bill. Um, and yeah, some people think it's extinct. And there's even been sort of an idea that people have been looking for it for a while and they haven't seen it. But I don't think people have really been looking for it that as um, communicated. I mean, um, every time I've talked to Arturo Crocanel, for example, on the Cuban kite, he's like, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a question of going and trying to look for it. But he hasn't communicated to me that there's been much work to actually look for it. And uh, there is a photograph, and it was seen last, I want to say like in the 90s, maybe early 90s. So the idea that it's extinct, I'm not buying it. I, I I would say that it's probably still around. Um, and I do think it's a good split. Um, even though we don't have vocal data, we don't have various other bits of data, it's pretty distinctive and it's really isolated. Um, yeah, yeah, that one caught my eye because I just was surprised by it. How about, what's your take on, did you see the Labrador duck? Uh, did yeah. You, um, look at that which is extinct. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't everybody um, kind of figure they were, they were closely related to Stellar's Eider. Um, I don't think they did. Cause they had to move huh. it in the, they actually had to move it in the checklist order. Um, I guess that was another one I was surprised by because, you know, you, you look at it and you, you know, Stellar's Eider is not like the other Eider's. Um, right. a lot of folks know, but a lot of folks may not know, um, it is not like the other riders, like structurally, it's just a different beast. It's in a different genus. And I, I used, I don't know, I, I used to tell everybody that, you know, it was, it, it must surely be, uh, the Labrador ducks closest living relative. I don't know where I got that information from, um, but on like on our Alaska tours, I used to I used to tell people that. Um, yeah. So um, maybe it just uh, proves you're ahead of the game. <laughs> I must have heard it someplace or read it someplace. But um, at any rate, yeah, that one was was not a surprise. But I thought it was it's cool. You know, it's like it's just cool to think yeah. of. I think it's cool to think of how different Labrador duck is than anything else that exists right now, and right. also healthy for people to think about how Stellar's Eider is really a distinct duck. It's a different, it's a different thing. And when yeah. you see that, it, you know, if you're lucky enough to see one, um, you know, take time to, to think about how this is as close as we're going to get, you know, folks, unless they, they manage to clone some Labrador ducks sometime soon. So as close yeah. as we're going to get. Yeah. And I mean, uh, let's see, I've just, one of the other, one of the, maybe the final thing I'll say that uh, there was a proposal to lump the black oyster catcher with the blackish oyster catcher, which you can kind of get at why that, why that was a, you know, thought. They, 
there's this black oyster catcher in the far, in northern hemisphere. There's this blackish oyster catcher in you know, South America, and they they look pretty pretty similar, structurally different, but you know they're all black and all that. But the idea was to lump them, and I thought, where did this come from? You know, it's sort of a weird. Um, it was truly almost like they look alike, therefore they should they should you know we should stick them in the same same species. They don't quite sound alike. They don't, you know, do a lot of other things alike. And um, and I, I I wrote a defense for keeping them separate to the committee. You know, I and then other people did as well. And uh, it is interesting that some of these things come out of the blue. You know, like you're like, why are we why are we doing this? It's sort of like you know, <laughs> and then but then you have the 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 pot- potential horror of let's say people go along with it and they just suddenly lump this t- these two things. It'd be like, Oh no, you know, like this makes no sense, but nobody, nobody put in a word against this or, you know, sort of data to support the, so there's all sorts of things that go on in these, you know, pro- there's this process, a lot of them that don't really come to light because they're just voted down behind the scenes or, or what have you. And they're, or they're thrown back to, to get more data on it. But uh, I wish they would be, they would put out their, their opinions publicly as to what, what they were thinking. Cause the North American committee does not, the South American committee does all the opinions are actually public. And uh, that would be kind of useful. Cause then you at least get a sense for what, if somebody votes something down, why they voted it down rather than it's like, the committee just didn't accept this. We have no idea why, you know? Yeah, it would be nice to know. I mean, there's there's some some splits that were not adopted that I think we we all wonder why. Um, yeah. But, you know, it'd be interesting to hear more about the Wimbrel and the Sharpshinned Hawks from across various parts of the New World. Um, and... You know, I've kind of been waiting for San Lucas Robin um, in Baja California to get split from American Robin. That's kind of one. I don't really I don't know anything about it, um, but it just I just think it would be cool if that thing was split and was endemic and was completely isolated. And we had to make pilgrimages to go see it. You know, it'd be a great reason to go to that part of the world. Um, So, you know, not all of my reasons are scientific by any means, but. you know, it, it would be interesting to hear the rationale on why they didn't do some of these things. So. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's really completely like, okay, we have three quarters of the puzzle here. Um, and they, they basically throw it back to get the other quarter of the puzzle. Sometimes I feel like these, there's enough there to, to separate, you know, something and just go with it. And there's a little uncertainty on it. And, uh, Again, you have you have the ability to to change back if you have to in the future. You know what I mean? Like these are not static for the time being, but I, th- I think there's a real concern that the committees have of like backtracking, which I don't know why. You know, I change yeah. my mind all the time, and I think it's kind of a fun <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> and 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 not changing your mind sometimes because is 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 you know being conservative on these committees can make you end up more incorrect than just being flexible. 
uh, being a little more flexible, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. a thankless job. and you know, It is that for sure. You know, uh, nobody gets paid to be on these committees. Nobody, yeah. you know. Uh, and birders uh, see around and they probably start, you know, giving you flack for yeah, yeah. decisions. So, and, yeah. and the professionals, I don't think they get any professional accolades um, or anything accolades or better job because they do it. In fact, you might argue the opposite, you know, they're spending time on this stuff that's taking time away from their actual publications. So, so yeah, it's uh it's easy to be critical. Um, obviously. Um, but that's what we yeah. do here. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're, committed. we're committed. We're interested. We're interested parties. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Um, Alvaro, what else have you got going on in the next coming up in the next couple of weeks here? We have more pelagics coming up all the way into late October. So it's high season for you. High pelagic high season. season. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they you can find all that at alvarosadventures.com and there's like a boat trip pelagic section there. You can go down and, and pick a trip. Um yeah, some of the ones coming up are selling out pretty quickly. But uh excited. Because uh, you know, we there's some species we really sort of haven't seen yet. The season hasn't progressed um, through uh, to the point of you know actually seeing flesh-footed shearwater coming in, or you know the numbers of skuas, and so the later arrivals, and uh, that's always cool to look forward to. And right now, it just seems like there's a lot going on. There's like a lot of activity, both. You got it in the East Coast, and we got it on the West Coast. Just a, a great year for offshore birding. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our trip I mentioned coming up on the 10th of September as well. And I'm also looking forward to just being around for spring migration. I'll be, you know, between now and the time you and I get on that boat to go to Antarctica, I'm mostly going to be around here doing some regional trips, uh, going down to Cape May a couple times, including for the the festival there. I'll be leading some field trips. I hope folks will take a look at uh, the Cape May um, uh, New Jersey Audubon Festival that's coming up in October. That's going to be fun. Uh, I'll be spending some time down on the eastern shore of Virginia in the Cape Charles area, uh, the tip of the Delmarva Peninsula there. It's uh, another peninsula on the in the Mid-Atlantic that collects a lot of southbound birds. That should be a ton of fun. I'll be going there with some folks and friends from the Pennsylvania Society of Ornithology. So that'll be a good time. And uh, yeah, Hillstar stuff, man, there's a lot going on. Uh, we're about to publish some more information about our Glacier to Grasslands tour guided by Josh Coville. And Molly and I still have a good amount of space left on our Columbia Life List event that's coming up in February. It's a great deal. Really encourage folks to take a look at it. Uh, it's We're working with the Colombian government, and uh, we've managed to really keep costs down. Uh, I think this could be a really fun event, and uh, Molly and I are both excited for it. So really encourage folks to take a look at that. Um, but yeah, anything else for the good people, Al? I am excited about vagrant season. You know, we don't have a lot of true migration here in the West, but we get the vagrants coming in, a lot of Eastern warblers, and it's it's already starting up pretty quick early. I mean, we're not even in September, and there's red starts and water thrushes being seen and least flycatchers and all this, and I'm thinking, 
ooh, I think this is shaping up to be like a big vagrant year. It wasn't last year. So, uh, so maybe you're due. Kinda, you know, yeah, prairie warblers showing up and all sorts of stuff. So nice. I'm keen on getting out a few mornings and quickly checking some willow patches or, or just looking out the backyard and seeing if I can find something here. <laughs> Me too. Got two new yard birds the other night. I got my first common night hawks going over, had seven of them, and my first peregrine falcon, the fastest animal on the planet, cruising right over Roxborough, Philadelphia here. Pretty sweet. Wow, yeah. Man, I get like one new one a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've been there a while. Yeah. Well, cool beans, man. Good chatting with you as always. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again soon. Cheers, Al. Bye-bye. See you all. Bye.